I can only imagine what it must have been like that night with Jesus as he gathered there in that upper room with his beloved disciples. The cross looms large, just a short few hours away. If there is ever a time for unity, if there is ever a time for common purpose to bind them together, if there is ever a time for there to be ample evidence that they are coalescing as his team upon whom he can depend and trust this message of reconciliation and hope that will be left to them, this is the time. They have gathered in this room to celebrate, to commemorate that tremendous event of God's provision and liberation from when the enslavement of the Hebrews in Egypt was to be broken. The time of Passover. The time when they would recall that God is never without a witness, that God does have intention for God's people. And yet here they were, gathered around this table in a state of disarray. There is enmity between them. There is harshness in their language toward one another. It is clear there is disruption in their community. What is Jesus to do? It must have been heartbreaking for him. He loved them, says the text. He loved them to the end. His heart is breaking because he wants better for them. It is not so much that he is disappointed, though perhaps that is the case. It is that he knows that unless they share this commonality of vision, unless they are encouragers to one another, unless they join together as his holy people, the mission will not be accomplished, and the world will destroy them one by one. With that in mind, he gets up from his place of honor at the head of the table, goes over, taking off his outer garment, girds himself with a towel, and takes a pitcher and begins to fill a basin. The disciples are growing uneasy because they don't know what he's doing. What we surmise is that when the disciples came into that gathering place, the custom of washing feet had not been observed. Usually, in a family that had resources, the lowest-ranking servant would take care of that task. After all, feet get hot and filthy, dirty. The roads were primarily dirt, filled with garbage. Oh, my goodness, it would be so refreshing to have the cool water on your feet and to have the grime removed and then dried with a towel, but not one single disciple was willing to take on that servant role. Not one was willing to step away from the status of being among equals and take what they all perceived to be the lesser role. Now Jesus, Jesus, the guest of honor, girded with towel, comes and kneels before them. Can't you just see them begin to draw their feet up and try to hide them a bit? This is embarrassing. Perhaps they are filled with shame. Perhaps there is a recognition that one of us should have done this. Perhaps they are thinking, well, if not me, it should have been him or it should have been him. And yet Jesus washes each of them, beckoning, beckoning them to bring their dirty feet that are symbolic of their dirty hearts out of hiding 
that he might do for feet and hearts what only he can do. He even comes to the feet of Judas, the one who has already decided to betray him, and says to Judas, your feet, please. Love's last attempt at turning, washing all of their feet, Jesus rises, puts on his outer garment, returns to his place of honor and sits and says, do you realize what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and right you are, for so I am. If I have done this for you as your teacher and as your Lord, then you need to do this for one another, for the servant is never greater than his master, and the student is never greater than the teacher. The question for me, these many centuries later, is what was it, what was it that caused the disciples to move away from the basin of servanthood? And are those same things at work in my life, and perhaps yours, that cause us to move away from that same basin? I wonder, I wonder if maybe the disciples, not making excuses, just knowing humanity, I wonder if the disciples were tired. Tired? After all, when I get tired, it takes the edge off my good humor. I don't know about you. What I do know that when you get tired, you are less than your best. Some years ago, out in California, there was a novel defense mounted for a young mother who had done harm to her infant child. And the defense was that she was so tired, she was so exhausted, that she became someone else. We do know that when we're very tired, when we're exhausted, that it can actually change some of our personality profiles if we take the same instrument when we are refreshed, feeling good, and when we are very exhausted, very tired, excuse the results. Some years ago, I took something called the Herman's Brain Mapping Profile. It was supposed to tell you if you were a left-brainer or a right-brainer, if you operated out of the creative side of your brain or out of the more analytical side of your brain. So I was really eager to find out if I was a left-brainer or a right-brainer. My results said that I was a no-brainer. <laughs> Never underestimate the power of tiredness to deplete you and to cause you to move away from the basin of servanthood. And it has a companion kind of tiredness, and that is something called compassion fatigue. Pre-COVID days, pre-COVID days, one of my favorite activities, when Lydia would allow it, was to go on my own, unsupervised, to that modern-day wonder called Costco. Now, on those rare occasions that she let me go by myself, 
she would usually tell me to pick up just one item. Just one, didn't want to tax my limited capacity. So I would go to Costco, but I'm easily distracted. And Costco has these wonderful things called free sample stations. I could spend half a day in Costco just wandering around to the free sample stations. And boy, they're so good, I bite that, and I, and I taste that, and I'll go get some of that, I'll go get some of that, and I get all of these things, and I check out, and I get home with all of my newfound treasures, except the one thing Lydia sent me over there to get. Well, one Saturday morning, I was on the way to Costco feeling good. Lydia had given me my allowance. My wallet, which usually doesn't have folding money in it, had several crisp $5 bills. I'm on Wendover Avenue and going toward Costco. When I come to a stoplight over there where the Walmart Center is, and there at that stoplight is a person there in the media, medium with a sign, homeless, please help. Well, I had my allowance. I just got a $5 bill out, feeling good about it. I made eye contact with that person. They came over and I said, here you go. You have a great day. He, God blessed me and I, God blessed him. And I went on my way feeling really good about what I had done. We're called to be servants, right? We're called to help the under-resourced. And I was feeling good just going down through there and got hit with another traffic light and there was another person with a sign, homeless, please help. Well, I got another $5 bill out of my wallet. It wasn't quite as quick to do it as I was the first time, and I caught the eye contact, and they came over, and I God blessed him, and he God blessed me, and I went on my way, and bless Pat, I got to a third stoplight, and there was another person with a sign, homeless, please help. And I got that $5 bill out, and I made eye contact. And that person came over, and they, God bless me, and I said, yeah, God bless you, and went on my way. Well, I finally got to Costco, and I went in. I was just feeling so overwhelmed by all of the needs that I didn't even go by the sample stations. I just went in, got what Lydia told me to get, and I got in the car, and I started to drive back, and then it hit me. I'm going back the same way. Those people are still going to be there, but aha, they'll recognize me. I'll just tell them I was here before. I gave you $5, but when I got to the stoplight, they had changed shifts. There was a whole new set of people there, homeless, God bless. Do you know what I did? I felt so overwhelmed. I turned right and took a side street to avoid seeing them. Compassion fatigue. When the needs are so great, our resources get thinned out, we don't feel like we are adequate to the task, and it causes us to move away from the basin of servanthood. But there is another reason with darker tones to hear. We are told in the scriptures over in Luke chapter 22 and Luke chapter 9 that the disciples had been arguing over greatness. 
Who's going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom? Now, it's a natural thing. It's a good thing. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to be valued. But these disciples were arguing over who should be valued the most. Who ought to have the places of authority and honor? Who ought to be recognized for what they had done, the work they had put in? And when we, when we feel like we're overworked and undervalued and underappreciated, it can move us, it can move us to a point of bitterness and apathy. You see, Jesus would see another pitcher and basin toward the close of his earthly journey in Matthew 27. Jesus is brought before Pilate. The crowds want him crucified. Pilate, Pilate examines him. He finds no reason to put him to death. Even Pilate's wife tells him, don't have anything to do with this man. I have suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Don't mess with him. But Pilate cannot dissuade the crowd. And finally, in exasperation, feeling overwhelmed, he calls for the basin, fills it with water. And in front of everyone, he takes his hands, dips them in the water, washes his hands and says, I'm done with this. I want nothing else to do with this. I don't care what you do with him. And the crowd said, let his blood be on us and our children. And Pilate's response, fine. The late Fred Craddock was the professor of preaching and New Testament studies down at Emory University and used to tell the story, used to tell the story of something that happened to him when he was at a church service there in Atlanta with his family. They had driven two cars because Fred was going to have to leave right after the service and he was going to have to go and, and do a, a little seminar, a little seminar. He's going to be teaching a class and so right after the service, he bid adieu to his family, and he started out the back way of the church, which took him by the choir room. And as he was going by the choir room, most everybody there was gone, except for one lady who was putting her choir robe in the little cubby that they had. And Fred just kind of called out. He knew her a little bit. He called out to her and said, Great anthem today. And she shot back, Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because I'm hanging it up. Well, Fred was already past the door. But the tone of what she said stopped him dead in his tracks. And he backed up into the doorway and he said, what's the matter with you? She said, oh, they say they care about you around here, but they really don't. They say they do, but they really don't. So I'm hanging it up. This is my last Sunday. I'm done. Fred Craddock couldn't help but glance at his watch. He knew he was running close, so he couldn't engage the woman the way he wanted to. He said, he just mumbled something like, oh, you'll get over it. And he went on his way, but her comment bothered him. It bothered him all afternoon. They don't care about you. 
You see, it wasn't the first time he had ever heard that comment leveled against the church or the people of it. Growing up in the rural area of Tennessee, Fred Craddock's mom was one of the most faithful people you could ever have. She was at church. She was a willing worker. She loved her faith. But Mr. Craddock, he was another story. He was somewhat prideful of the fact that he never darkened the doors of the church. Now, there was a rhythm to life in that community, and every fall after the crops were in, it was time for revival. And at revival time, they'd bring in a visiting evangelist. And the evangelist not only would hold services, but prior to those services would visit with the local pastor in the community as a way of people getting to sample the spirit of the evangelist and also for the evangelist to have a crack at those people who didn't usually come to church like Mr. Craig. So the local pastor arranged the time and brought the visiting evangelist and they sat in the sitting room of the Craddock house. Mrs. Craddock was there. Mr. Craddock was there. Fred was in another room, but he could see and hear through the doorway. Everything was congenial at the time. Mr. Craddock, Mr. Craddock was a smart man, well-read, though not well-educated. And they talked congenially about the weather, about the crops, a little bit about politics. But when the visiting evangelist began to press him about coming to church, began to press him, Mr. Craddock began to get louder. And he looked at the, that local pastor and he said, What's the matter, pastor? You're running behind on the budget? Is that it? You need another member? You need another dollar? I know you don't care about me. It's not about caring about me. It's another member. It's another dollar. And his voice got louder. He got into kind of a litany that he was just saying to them, and Miss Craddock, Mrs. Craddock got up from where she was and silently went into the kitchen and stood at the kitchen sink, her shaking shoulders betraying the silent sobs of her tears. She loved her husband and prayed for her husband and wanted for her husband to find what she had found. But the hardness of heart was there. Fred Craddock grew up and <laughs> became a preacher and then became a seminary professor. He was out west all the way across the United States teaching in a seminary when he got the call. Fred, your daddy's real bad sick. You better come, they said. Cancer, they said. Shouldn't have been smoking. They said, nothing more we can do, they said. Fred, with heavy heart, made the cross-country trip, and when he got to the hospital, he paused outside his father's hospital room door. He knew that they had done some surgery trying to prolong his life. They had removed his voice box. So, of course, he couldn't speak, and Fred was wondering how he might communicate with him. And drawing a deep breath, he pushed open the door and, and just stood there. As he looked 
Every place in the room was covered with cards and mementos. Every place you could put flowers was filled with vases of flowers. There were Sunday school there were Sunday school classes that had written cards. There were women's circles that had written cards. There were even children's drawings, hoping he would get better soon. Mr. Craddock, looking old and frail, there in the bed watched Fred as his gaze scanned the room. Then Mr. Craddock reached for a Kleenex box and a pen, and he began to write. He began to write from Shakespeare's Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2. In this life's harsh journey, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. And then he handed the Kleenex box to Fred. Fred read it. And he said, I, I will, Dad. What is it? His dad taking the pen and waving it across the room, pointing to all of those mementos, all of those well wishes, he then wrote, I was wrong. I was wrong. Fred got home that night after the seminar and he called that lady up. He called that lady up. And when she answered the phone, he lit right in. He said, you're wrong, you know. You're wrong. They do care. Wherever sorrow, wherever grief, wherever loss, wherever trouble has beat a path to the door of the human heart, on that same path, you're going to find the footprints of Christians. You're going to find the marks of the church who have come with open hearts, open arms, a cake, a pie, an outstretched hand, the love of Jesus. They do care. And she said, oh, really? Name some. She wants names. Truth is, the whole world wants names. I know you get tired. I know sometimes you feel overwhelmed. But may I give them your name? I know that sometimes we feel overworked and undervalued and underappreciated. But may I give them your name? Jesus holds the basin of servanthood and he looks for those who will join him in the redemptive ministry of serving that the world might know his hope, his promise, his healing and forgiveness. May I give him your name. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we see you holding the basin of servanthood. You know our human frailty. You know about tiredness and exhaustion. You experienced it in your earthly journey. You know what it is 
to be tempted. You know what it is to be undervalued, unappreciated. And yet towel and basin, towel and basin, you continued to serve, even to the point of a cross, serving up yourself for the benefit of all of us. Jesus, speak to us. Bring healing to us that you might work through us and be a people of the towel and basin for this world. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.